Resilience isn't getting to success faster. Ironically, it's tolerating the frustration of not having success yet, which we all know makes you more successful because you're able to work for longer. So that really, yes, is something that can be applied to a million different things. That process of preparing, supporting, regulating my own body, showing hope in my child and breaking things down into small steps and sticking with your calm presence over an immediate solution. I'm Amy. And I'm Abby. And as women, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. But your life isn't supposed to look like hers. Being your best self means standing firm in your decisions and always being willing to grow with a purpose. We get vulnerable and real with an honest look into the challenges and triumphs we all face. Every woman listening gets the opportunity to choose what life looks like for herself. We are in for a treat today. We have Dr. Becky Kennedy, who is a clinical psychologist, mom of three, and founder of Good Inside. Dr. Becky uses everything she knows about attachment, mindfulness, emotional regulation, and internal family systems theory to develop a new method for working with parents. As a longtime follower and fan myself, I've absolutely loved watching your success and I've learned so much from you. I'd love it if you let our audience know a little bit more about you and why you're so passionate about what you do. Thank you for having me. Thank you for that really, really kind introduction. So why am I so passionate about what I do? You know, I feel like there's just a way of being a parent, interacting with our kids and honestly interacting with ourselves and the other adults in our lives that just feels better for everyone and leads to, you know, kind of the development and outcomes we want. And so the idea that there's a way that both feels better and kind of does better and yet feels kind of groundbreaking and new, it does drive my passion because there really is a win-win approach. And I just feel so excited about talking about that with as many people as I can. As listeners, we are so excited for this interview and just everything that you put into the world. Dr. Becky, thank you for what you do because it can feel groundbreaking. It can feel so new. When we talk to our own parents about some of these things, it's just not the same message. So hearing from you and just your ability to speak on these topics, it's been really refreshing. So just huge kudos there. And in today's world of parenting, there just seems to be so much emphasis on emotion coaching and teaching our kids empathy. We've heard you speak on strategies to help teach our kids empathy instead of accidentally teaching them things like codependence. Mm -hmm. So when your kids do or say something hurtful, why do phrases like, that hurts mommy's feelings, not help our kids become more empathetic? And what can we start to see instead? You're going right for the good stuff. I like that. I I, kind of, no small talk. Let's just get into the good stuff. Okay. So let me say from the start that saying to your kids, that makes mommy feel bad or it hurts my feelings when you say something like that. If you're thinking as a parent, oh my goodness, I've said that. Okay. No, you have not damaged your kid. You have not gotten your kid's development. I think that looking at that in a different framework, which I'll talk through is so powerful and it can lead to such a kind of light bulb, aha set of moments, but that doesn't mean anyone messed up. It doesn't mean that this is the biggest offense of all. And it doesn't mean you have to entirely strike those other phrases from your vocabulary. So let's start out with that. Okay. So my kid is you know, really upset, maybe dysregulated and says something to me like, I don't even like you. I like daddy better, or I hate you, or I don't want you to come on this play date with my friend. I want it to be a drop off. Okay. Something like that. Why don't I like saying to a child that makes mommy feel bad or that hurts my feelings? Well, to fully answer that question, we have to zoom out a little bit and understand how kids take in the information around them and how that affects their development. So we actually have to start a little bit with attachment and evolution. And I promise you, then I'll zoom back into empathy. It all really, really matters. So our kids are dependent on us for so many years, more than any animal species. I think our kids take longer to be independent. 
And in fact, their survival, their literal survival in life depends on staying close to us and making sure that we meet their emotional needs. So when our kids are interacting with us, they're not just taking in our day-to-day interactions. They're taking it in through the lens of this thing I just did or said, does this push my parent further away from me? Which really is threat state, danger, survival is at risk. Or does this thing maintain closeness? Okay, I'm safe. I'm going to be able to figure this out. So when we say something to our kid like that makes mommy feel bad, a kid doesn't hear that. They don't hear, oh, I could say that another way. What a kid really goes through is, oh, whatever just happened, whatever feeling in me led to my words, oh, that is literally dangerous. Like I just overpowered my parent, my sturdy leader is scared, right? And I think a way to think about this is if you were on a plane, okay, and you were screaming when there was turbulence and a pilot came on and said, all that screaming makes me really feel bad. Please stop screaming. If you're like me, you'd be like, get me off this plane. Like, I'm sorry. If my pilot can't handle me screaming, if my pilot takes my screaming personally, and now my pilot can't pilot effectively, I feel really, really terrified. That's what happens to our kids. So when we say essentially, you're making me feel bad. A kid actually goes into threat mode. They then learn, oh, well, I guess I need to regulate everything happening for me to take care of my parent. That's not empathy. That's kind of a parentification or a role reversal. So let's go back to that moment where I say to my child, you know, you have to go to bed. I don't know. And they're like, I hate you. You're the worst parent ever after a whole day of doing a million things for my kids. I want my kids to have empathy as much as anyone else. I want your kids, listeners, to have empathy. I mean, for sure, it's super important, but it doesn't develop by linking our feelings to their behavior. That only activates their attachment threat. So we both want to be effective. We want our kids to develop empathy. If that's not how to do it, what would I say in that moment? And where does empathy come in? We're not going to develop empathy in that moment. Nobody has empathy for anybody anyway when they're in a dysregulated state, right? Like when I'm yelling at my husband about something, I'm not in an empathy capacity state. I first need to learn how to regulate my emotions. And then maybe I could say, oh, now I understand you didn't take out the trash because you had a really hard day at work. Now that I'm more regulated, like I actually care about that, right? Same thing for our kids. So my kid says, I hate you. First of all, I would think the truth is in my child's internal world, not in their words. Their words are just a sign of their struggle. So I hate you. What would I say? I just get through the moment. I'm not going to hold myself to do any skill building there. Maybe, wow, you really don't want to go to bed or oh, nothing feels good right now. Oh, you wish you could make your own decisions. I'm just going to kind of hold space in that way. Then maybe when they're calm, I talk to them about that. Oh, you really didn't want to go to bed. Oh, it's so annoying to not be able to make decisions all by yourself. Oh, I wonder the next time you don't want to do something I ask. I wonder what you could say. There's so many different ways to express ourselves. What do you think? I wonder. Right now I can brainstorm with them. And then actually the way they're going to develop empathy is number one, through learning how to regulate their feelings. Because you can't develop empathy for someone else if you're already overwhelmed yourself. So regulation is a prerequisite for empathy. I'm going to say that again. It's really important. Regulation is a prerequisite for empathy. So when your child is dysregulated, they haven't met the prerequisite yet, right? They've got to learn how to regulate first. Then our kids develop empathy for others through our experience of showing them empathy. We show them empathy. They absorb that. That forms their internal working model. So when I'm able to say to my kids things like, oh, you really didn't want to go to sleep. I get it. That actually is going to do more for my child developing empathy Definitely. Then linking my kids' behavior to my feelings, which not only gets in the way of empathy, it actually gets in the way of even regulation, which is the prerequisite for empathy. I'm <laughs> just like that was blown a away. No, I, Sorry. Well, <laughs> no. What I love, Dr. Becky, is a how you started because you just met parents where they are. I think when we're giving parents advice parents can automatically feel shame. And that's not what we want. We want to just give tools and different ways to think about things. And then secondly, in that answer, when you were talking about regulation and how that's a prereq for empathy, I was thinking, I think that's what a lot of adults are missing in this very charged climate. 
we can't even regulate ourselves and give empathy to each other as adults, but we're trying to teach our kids how to do this. Sometimes we have to look in the mirror, myself included, and figure out how to do that as an adult to other adults, let alone also children. A hundred percent, right? I think that's exactly right. And this is really my favorite part about everything good inside is that people will say often before they really digest our content. Like, what age is this good for? Is this good for my kid's age? And my kid is blank. It doesn't even matter what they say. I'm going to say yes. And they're like, how do you know? You haven't even heard how old my kid is. Because newborns need the same thing as, you know, 90 and 100 year olds and all of us in between. Now, the applications probably differ. The language has to be tweaked a little bit. But yeah, our kids need the same things we need, right? So if you think about a time you're having trouble really empathizing with someone you really love, maybe it's your you know, partner, maybe it's your mother-in-law, right? It's probably because you don't feel seen in some way. It's probably because you're dysregulated in some way. And I think we all know if we take a mother-in-law example, if we don't have empathy for something, let's say our mother-in-law wants to visit us, and we need a day on our own. I don't think she's getting our empathy by saying, you know, it makes me really sad when you say no. I don't know one person who would feel anything but super annoyed mm-hmm. in that situation. Like, oh, now I have to take care of your emotions as well. But if my mother-in-law said to me, you know, it's probably hard to kind of run a house and figure out who you want to come over and when you just need quiet time. And that's really hard. And it probably does involve disappointing people. You better bet. I'm going to then turn around and say to my mother-in-law, yeah, look, today's not a good day. And I know that's really disappointing to you. And that stinks for you. And I appreciate it. Now I actually got empathy and now I'm able to give empathy, but not when it's linked for me. Then I just feel really alone and really resentful. And also during that answer, I was like, wait, I want to give her an example that just happened in my household. And you can coach me if what I said was inappropriate. Let everyone know. (laughs) Okay. So my six-year-old recently said, you know what? I wish I had a new mommy that let me play video games. And I said, Maxwell, not every decision that I make for you, you're going to like, and that's okay. I mean, first of all, let me just say like, I am the first one to say the things that Dr. Becky says not to say. Okay. So like, I really, really mean that. Like my husband always says to me, he's like, I am always dying to tag your personal Instagram account, which by the way, I'd never even check, but he's like, I always want to tag your personal Instagram account on your work account. Cause he's like, you would love this woman's advice. And it would like really help you sometimes, you know? So it's really, really true. So But going back to your words, right? And again, with parents listening, like I would never listen to what a parent says and be like, that was wrong, that was right. Like to me, it's just about the overall pattern and is it effective? Like I'm more for effectiveness than the morality of right or wrong because I think we all want the exact same things for our kids. So we might as well just go about it in an effective way. But what you said, I'm obsessed with. Like I actually think that's something we don't say enough to our kids. I say that a lot to my kids. My number one job is to keep you safe physically and emotionally. And doing that job sometimes means making decisions you don't like, right? And I've said this to my kids, like, do you think my job, like what happens first? Do I want to keep you safe or happy? And they always like, safe, you know, like happiness for a kid. I always think they're going to find that on their own journey. That's not on me to control. And I think if I do my job of helping them feel safe across a wide range of situations, supporting their different experiences, helping them feel the widest range of emotion, then as they get older, more and more things will feel manageable to them. More and more times will they feel at home with themselves in a wide range of opportunities. Happiness finds people, you know, where that happens. Happiness really doesn't find people who ironically are always looking to be happy or always kept happy as kids because then the appearance of distress is like an alarm bell in the body. It's like, whoa, I'm not supposed to be feeling this way. First of all, versus, yeah, I feel this way. And then I can learn to contain it because I feel at home with it. So I love that message. I say that to my kids all the time. They don't like it when I say that, but I still say it. <laughs> well, it's interesting because he's six. So his questions, he had a follow-up question about why. And I answered, you know, talking about research on brain development, like at his level, I wasn't citing a study, but the conversation actually went really well, which surprised me because in the past, I've definitely said things like, 
that hurts mommy's feelings or, you know, honestly, like, okay, go try to find a different mom, which I'm trying to scale back on saying that. So I just like to be honest because I think these conversations happen behind closed doors and then listeners can feel like we're all perfect parents and we are certainly not. So moving on to the next question, something that we've heard you say before is that we think that having kids will heal us. But what happens in the end is kids can actually trigger us. Can you explain this reality and how we can be more aware of and accepting of times that we're triggered by our own kids? Do you guys ever talk about light topics on this podcast? No, no. No? Okay. Just wanted to, just wanted to get it, a base. It's funny because in the beginning, when you were like, you cut right to the deep questions, it's like, that's kind of what we're known for because we know our listeners are yes. so busy. No, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be at like a dinner and someone will say something. My husband just looks at me. He's like, Becky, please don't. Just like, just don't. Just like smile and move on. Please don't. And then I like always do. And he's like, oh boy, there we go again. Ruining dinner table conversation. <laughs> I like the deep stuff too. So triggers. So this is perfect timing, right? As we're recording this, my brand new triggers workshop is two days away. So it's funny you brought up this topic because I am like almost unable to talk about other things right now because it's really what I'm focused on. So yes. We think our kids will heal us and yet they trigger us. And none of this means we're bad parents or bad people. Okay. So I think triggers are really misunderstood and understanding them gives us a new framework. And then as always, I love to take new frameworks and just translate them into actionable steps. So we actually can, you know, see the change we want to see. So what's the framework for triggers? Well, whatever we're triggered with and someone else, essentially, if you think about a trigger, what happens is you see something, there's an event and your body just looks to shut something down right away. It's like something explodes out of you. There is no space between the event and the reaction, right? That's like the essence of a state of reactivity instead of groundedness. It's like stimulus reaction, right? It just happens. So why? Well, if you think about any reflex we have, it's something <laughs> that we've learned to pair together over and over and over and over. And often our strongest reflexes are there for our protection. They almost all are, right? That's what our body is designed to do. So it's a powerful framework to take the idea of triggers instead of what we usually say to ourselves, which is some version of something's wrong with me, or I'm a horrible parent, or what type of parent would react that way? Because nobody feels good about how they respond in a trigger moment. If we place all that self-blame like on a bookshelf or just behind us for a second, say hi to it because it has a story to tell too and come back and we look at this is interesting i'm looking at this trigger moment from the point of view of huh protection like is this reaction i'm having to my kid it's certainly not protecting anyone now in 2022 but did it come from a protective place and and the answer is yes right so my whole approach with kids honestly mostly comes from the work i've done over many decades with adults because i believe adult symptoms were all childhood adaptations that's why i actually hate the word symptoms it's why i don't love psychological diagnosis at all because it pathologizes things in adults that were adaptations in childhood that feels like in the simplest way just like very mean to me right like why would we do that to people so what was adaptive about a trigger response that you have with your kid? Well, let's take an example or maybe one of you. What do you hear about as common triggers or in your own lives or triggers when you see it in your kid? I would say anything with bedtime. So mm. maybe a kid not going to bed and you try to keep your cool and then all of a sudden screens come out leaving. Could that be a trigger we could talk about together? Totally. Yeah. So what's going on at night, right? When we're triggered, right? There's other layers of triggers. Let me just say this beyond our childhood, right? Another big layer of triggers, and I think this is especially true at night, is, you know, it's just how depleted we are in the moment we're triggered, right? And if you think about nighttime, it's just that time <laughs> adults want no time with their kid <laughs> at the exact same moment when kids want extra time with adults because it's dark and it's, you know, separation, right? So it's just like a real mismatch of needs, right? But let's see what else is going on at night. What could be triggering? Because there are parents I, you know, is it when my kid is like, mommy, mommy, that night it's like, oh, I really respond in a way that I don't want to respond. So what could be triggering about this? Well, I think the first question is, how do I interpret my child's behavior in that trigger event? 
because we don't really respond to an event ever. We respond to the way we've interpreted it, right? So often at night, it feels like this, just like amassing of like needs, like it's so needy, it's so helpless, right? So as an example, if we think about kind of our childhood stuff coming back alive in a trigger, I know many people who said, yeah, like I wasn't really allowed to express my needs. I kind of was brought up with the put on a smile and figure things out. And like, if that was true, then a child expressing their needs in an inconvenient time would be especially at odds with the adaptations you've made over the course of your earliest years when you were wiring your body to essentially put your needs away, probably especially at inconvenient moments. Because if in your childhood, if at night, If you would have said at, let's say, 8 p.m., mom, dad, I need more water, dad, papa, whoever your parents were, right? I need this thing or I'm scared. If you know your parents would have reacted with some version of, you know, stop being so selfish or what is wrong with you or stop being a baby, you're already eight years old. If it was something like that, then it would have actually been adaptive for you to develop a part of you that would have shut down those fears and wants, kind of with the voice of, don't do this. Your parents are going to get so upset. Again, like this is going to threaten attachment. Stop, stop. What is wrong with you? You're being a baby. And that sounds so mean, but it's actually a protective part of us trying to protect us in our most important relationship. Now, fast forward 30 years. When we see in our child, a part of them that we had to learn to shut down in ourselves, the protector part of us literally in our body, like puts their hand up as like an overzealous kid in class. It's like, I know what to do. I, I know how to help this situation. Pick me, except they don't wait to be picked. They just jump into the driver's seat and then they react to a child in the same way. And in a way, our kids in those moments, like, we think like they're just like actors in our play. Like this has nothing to do with them, right? Like they're just kind of like a pawn. And the way we can really shift this is number one, really healing those parts of ourselves that probably needed something and couldn't get it. And then also, and this is especially true at nighttime, is the more general kind of process of how can I take care of my own personal needs earlier and sooner and with more seriousness? So when my kids call me at nighttime, I'm not just thinking this was my one hour of my whole day, or this is my one five minutes of my whole day to myself. Because I promise you, if I've had three different five minute periods to myself that I've prioritized, not in caregiving mode, then when my kid screams out for me, I'm definitely not going to like it. Don't get me wrong. Nope. But I'm probably not going to be as triggered because I'm not as fried. A quick break from our sponsor, Expecting and Empowered. As most of you might know by now, this is my other company. We are a pregnancy and postpartum fitness app that gives you the exact roadmaps you need for whatever season you're in. So we have things for those of you that are pregnant, those of you that are postpartum, and those of you that are even a few years out from having kids. Myself and Abby, we do the Elevated and Empowered advanced postpartum guide, and we find it to be so challenging. Both of us also coach inside of the 12-week return to running program. We have a brand new core program that is made to restore the appearance and the function of your core, something that a lot of us can struggle with after kids. So I'm excited to, as the owner, offer you the biggest discount available, which is 25% off if you use the code HERSELF25. So you can go to expectingandempowered.com and get inside the app, make sure to use the discount code HERSELF25, and then make sure that you tag Abby and I inside of your workout because we would love to see you guys taking care of yourself. You just made me completely reevaluate any type of inconvenience that happens at bedtime right there. The amount of notes that I just jotted down from that one answer, Dr. Becky. And it does go back to your very, very first answer with just the evolution that we have and zooming out and taking a look at the big picture. And also knowing, listeners, if you're in this position, because I am too, we haven't screwed up our kids. We can start over now, learn from what we may have grown up with, with our own parents, and then just reevaluate and change some of the behaviors that we're doing. But that all makes so much sense when we're so depleted and we're so tired. The kids just want their needs met while we may not have been getting our needs met throughout the day. So that was really, really helpful. And let me say about sleep, 
our sleep approach in that workshop, I think is one of the ones that truly differentiates from like any other sleep approach out there, because I'm personally a fan of independent sleep for my kids. Now, I feel a responsibility to say, like, if you're not and you like to co-sleep or you like to fall asleep with your kids, I do not think anyone's doing anything wrong at all. I totally see the value of that. I actually think it's just about as parents, like what really works for us, what serves us. So I, in my family, right? And I think a lot of the families I work with, they want to work toward independent sleep, but they don't want to do it in a way that just feels awful to everyone, right? And I know a lot of people say my pediatrician even said, close the door and just let your kid vomit and, you know, cry and it'll be okay in two days. I do not recommend that. And I think there's, you know, actually ways of building independent sleep that build skills your kid needs for life. Forget just skills for sleep, but we can actually teach them the skills in those moments that give them the most bang for their buck, like more comfort with separation, ways to self-soothe. Guess what? Same skill they're going to use when they're nervous during a math test 10 years later. So we don't have to like when they interrupt us. We don't have to say, okay, well, I'm not triggered. So I guess I'm just going to lay with them for five hours. Of course, unless you want to, there is a big you know, space in between. So just for everyone listening, I want to make it clear. It doesn't mean that when you're not triggered and recognize your kid's experience, it doesn't mean that you are locked into any one way of behaving. In some ways, it actually opens up the opportunity to intervene in a way that's both going to feel better and honestly is just more effective as well. Mm. Such a good point. And I know our journey to independent sleep It was just a lot longer than Instagram sometimes makes it look. And so for our family, that's just kind of what we needed to go through. I'd be really interested to see your resource and see if I could have picked up any, you know, things that made it a little bit shorter, but still worked for our family. So one thing that I've told our listeners about in the past, and I've been open about is in the beginning of the pandemic, when Drew and I had much less support. I did go through a period of mom rage and that was just like, for me, I was just very on edge and yelling more than my normal self. I worked with my therapist and I'm in a much better place right now. But if I'm really honest, there are just some times where I still revert to yelling. And I wish that I did handle those situations better. I was also yelled at when I was a kid. So I think sometimes you hear that voice and you recognize it. But I want to know, and, and our message today is that no one needs to get parenting perfect, and that's not even possible. But I do think that we need to learn why repairing with our kids is so critical mm. and what are the steps to doing so with our children. Yes, yes. The next amazing topic, repair. It's so true. I'm just going to say this, like for every parent listening, the single most important strategy to get better at is repair. And if you actually think about what that means, we can all take a deep breath, like, wait, if I have to get really good at repair, doesn't that mean I actually almost have to keep messing up because I can't repair for something I didn't mess up? Yes. That's why it's such an amazing strategy because yes, of course, we all want to do the things that we repair for less often. And there's plenty of things we can do to work on that. And we're still going to do them. I yell at my kids. I've said things I don't want to say. I've, you know, said like, you know, fine, no screen time for a week. I'm like, why did I say that? I'm not even going to stick to it. And like, now I have to go apologize. Like I say that too, but what I can hold myself to is repair. And I just think as like a simple mantra to hold on to, I say this to myself in my tough moments, like good parents don't get it right all the time. Good parents repair. I always sing it to myself like that. Good parents don't get it right all the time. Good parents repair. And so why does repair matter and then how to do it? So one of the things we have to appreciate about ourselves and definitely our kids is our body doesn't lie. Our kids' bodies go through their experiences and our bodies are set up to absorb our experiences and register them. And if you think about it, you wouldn't ever want your kid to ever be in a place where they're not registering the experiences they have. I can't imagine one day when your kid's 20, you're going to watch them be in a relationship with someone who's like verbally abusing them. And if your kid says, yeah, like, I don't even know what you're talking about. That seemed totally normal. You'd be like, whoa, can you register that experience? Like we want our kids to register experience and we can't pick for them to register tough experiences when they're 18 and over and not encourage them to register those experiences with us. So we want our kids' body to register things like that didn't feel good when my mom yelled at me. 
I really mean this. The only reason we wouldn't want our kids to register that experience is if we center ourselves instead of our kids. Centering ourselves would be like, oh, but that means I'm such a bad parent and I did that. That's centering ourselves in their experience. If we center them, we want our kids to know the things that don't feel good. And we also want them to expect people in their lives to come back and repair those experiences. If we center our kids, it becomes more obvious. So we want to center our kids' experience. We want them to have certain things register over the course of their lives. So what does that look like when I've yelled at my five-year-old just because I was stressed probably about something else? Well, my kid knows things that don't feel good. They know I yelled at them. They know I maybe even said like, can you make anything, you know, easier? You are the most difficult child in this family. Okay. And if you're thinking mine is so much worse than that, it's fine. We've all been there. So I've said this thing. Now I'm separate from my kid. What's happening in my kid's body? Their body registered that feeling. Their body feels bad. Now also their body probably also feels scared, right? Because if you go back to attachment is most critical, they think, wow, like I just threatened my attachment with my parent. Like what's going on? I'm all alone. I'm probably spiraling. That feeling is in their body. Now, if we don't go back to them and if we don't repair, the feeling lives just free floating in them without any opportunity to reconnect or to kind of make sense of it. It's just in their body, right? The option is never they're going to forget it because our body doesn't forget sensory experiences. The only option is either they're alone with it or I can reconnect to them. And so if we don't go to repair, I think this is really important. Here's what happens. Our kid has that big, overwhelming experience. I'm alone. Maybe I'm bad. What did I do? Am I going to get love again? This is all my fault, right? Our kids only have two coping skills to rely on if we don't go back to them after moments that feel so scary. Self-blame and self-doubt. Self-doubt sounds like this. Uh, That probably didn't happen. I mean, if that really happened, if my mom really did scream and say those things, probably would have talked to me about it. Someone probably would have come and discussed that with me. I don't know. I guess I'm not so good at perceiving tricky things that happen. I can promise you we don't want our teenagers to be doubting their own perception of social interactions later in life. None of us want that. We don't want self-doubt wired into tricky moments. What about self-blame? Well, that's the other thing kids have. I'm so bad. I'm too much. I mess everything up. This is all my fault. And if we want to know why so many of us adults have so much self-doubt, am I feeling this right? Would other people feel this way? Or self-blame, this is my fault. What's wrong with me? I'm too much. Well, it's because those (laughs) quote coping skills were wired in early because they used to be adaptive because we didn't have anything else. So if we don't want that, we have to repair. When you repair, you essentially reopen a chapter in a kid's book. You kind of reopen the file and you add all the elements that were missing in the first place. It's so amazing. You add connection. You take away blame. You add safety. You add compassion. You add a story to understand instead of confusion. So I go back to that moment. I might say this. Hey, you know, earlier today when I yelled at you, look, just like we talk about you having big feelings, you know, mommy does too. And sometimes those feelings come out in my body. And that was one of those times I'm going to work harder at managing my feelings. And I want you to know it is never your fault when I yell. That was not your fault. I know that probably felt scary. I love you and I'm here with you. And what I really do in that moment is I stop the wiring of self-blame and self-doubt. I stop the confusion. I stop the aloneness because I've actually added on to that circuit my safe, secure attachment and connection. And now my child feels safe again. Now my child does trust themselves. Now my child doesn't have such a big hit to their self-esteem because I've gone back and explained myself and reconnected. A quick word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. You know, today we're diving into parenting. And a lot of what we know is that sometimes we have to work on ourselves and heal the way that we were parented in order to show up as the parents that we want to be. I talked about this a lot with my BetterHelp therapist. 
And she also taught me, you know what? You're still going to make mistakes in parenting. Like we can't have a bar that is too high. And that's something that I really worked on with Kristen, my BetterHelp counselor. So if this speaks to you and you think that you could use some wise words and therapy from one of their trained expert counselors, you can go to betterhelp.com backslash herself and get 10% off your first month. That's better, H-E-L-P.com backslash herself. And you can join the over 2 million people that use their services. Now back to our show. Mm. And in the moment, you can feel so out of control when the yelling starts and you're feeling so frazzled. But when you can separate yourself from the child, take a step back and remember that good parents don't get it right all the time. Good parents repair. Like that's when you can make those amends and just reopen that book like you had mentioned, reopen that book and really stop the confusion really rewire for a better tomorrow. And I know a lot of people listening might be thinking, oh, that self-blame that I have, the self-doubt that I had. I think that we could even rewire it in our own systems, Dr. Becky, with just talking to ourselves kinder and being able to understand that we won't always get it right, but we can definitely repair. And that kind of brings us into another question that I wanted to ask you about people-pleasing, because we know a lot of people in our audience, they either used to be people-pleasers or they are today, and you teach a lot of ideas as they relate to this type of personality. So could you share with us how this tendency can lead to suppressing our own personal wants and needs, and maybe how people-pleasing parents can work through it to get their needs met so that these types of situations happen less and less? Yes. So people-pleasing. You know, I think having this people-pleasing tendency or another way of thinking about it is you were kind of quote, like an easy kid, right? Oh, she was so easy, right? I'm saying she, it could be he, but there's like often a story of, you know, easy daughters, you know, what it really means. And it's going to sound a lot less like positive this way, but that's kind of my intention is if you were or are a people-pleaser, you have those tendencies or you're kind of this easy kid. I think what it really means is, I was raised to be more attentive to what other people needed of me rather than what I needed for myself. Or I learned to notice what other people wanted of me, often at the expense of noticing what I might want for myself. And I'm a pretty visual person. So I often think of like the gaze Like I've learned to gaze out at others and almost the real estate then and my body and brain are kind of based on gazing at what other people want of me. That takes up a lot of space relative to just gazing in and asking myself and then eventually finding the answer to what do I want? What what do I, you know, and it's actually really powerful for everyone here. You know, we ask ourselves that question and I found working with so many adult women, it's a really unraveling question right? Like people can often say, I know when my needs aren't being met, they know when they're angry and resentful. And that's some of that mom rage. But in a moment, the question of what do I want for myself? Let me just gaze in. It is really unraveling. There's a panic feeling. It's like a brand new circuit. And in fact, that panic feeling is a sign. Wow. It literally was adaptive for me to gaze out for so long because the process of gazing in, it literally does feel like a threat. Again, my body doesn't lie. I always think this. There's no baby who came out of the womb with the experience of, is it okay to want milk right now? Do you think that would be okay with everyone? Am I asking for too much? Yeah, I might be. So I'm just not going to cry, right? Like that's not how babies come out. So how do we start feeling essentially purely as a ball of want and desire with full access to what that desire is and full access to expressing it in the intensity we feel it, to being adult women who essentially say, asking myself what I want brings me on a panic attack. How did that happen? And how can I make a shift? So I think that's the framework for people pleasing. (laughs) And then what do we do next, right? Well, I think just understanding that the reason this pattern is so hard to shift is because the process of looking at what my own wants and needs are is actually full of distress for me. And that distress, again, used to be protective because if it was adaptive to be people-pleasing, then me thinking about what I actually want 
is threatening, right? Because it is not people pleasing to say, I don't want to go. I don't know, make this up. Like my whole family, I remember this story in my practice. Person was like, my whole family was intense skiers, ski, 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 four kids, all skiing, all. And she's like, I remember one morning telling my parents, I don't like skiing. I mean, I could cry when I think about what happened. They literally left her at their house. Like, I think she was like eight or something. Like just left, came back like however many hours later. If there is a sign that your own personal wants, forget aren't real and validated, but are actually dangerous to your attachment, that's a pretty powerful moment for a kid. So if now you look inside and you're thinking, I don't even know what I want for dinner. Well, our body doesn't give us access to certain wants and not other wants. Our body has learned whether our own wants, if in conflict with others, are safe or dangerous. Because again, in this family, I'm not saying a family has to say, okay, well, you don't want to ski. No one's skiing. But there's ways of navigating that. Oh, you don't want to ski. That's tricky. Let's figure this out. Where essentially a kid learns, okay, I'm allowed to have my own wants and needs, even if they're in conflict with others. Well, fast forward now to adulthood. It's hard to even know what you want for dinner because your body's just learned to put up a brick wall right? Or it's not really a brick wall. Maybe I'd say it's just a door that, you know, has learned to stay shut for a while, you know, blocking you from all the wants and needs to try again, to protect you and keep you safe in relationships. Mm. That leads us right into our next question, because we're going to take this a step further for women. I'm wondering, can you frame out why it is important for women, for mothers to have time away from their kids where they are getting their own needs met. Now, I've always said, I wish that women could do this for themselves because we are all worthy of it. But I think hearing it in the context of like why it's a good demonstration to our children, which you did a little bit there in the last answer. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. I'm going to do both because there is, like you said, a double-edged sword here. You know, the idea of like, do this for you because it's good for your kids. I won't even be, my body won't even let me finish that sentence. I feel like it's the wrong message to women, right? Like, I feel like the main message is like, you are more than a caregiver of other people. Like you are more than a caregiver. And I don't mean more like better. The other parts of you are better than the parts of you that caregiving. I just mean like, there's literally more of you. That's a part, a part of you who likes to take care of others and caregiving parts gaze out. They do a lot of gazing out, right? Like what's going on for you and what do you need and what do you want and what do you feel and how can I help you? And I don't think gazing out in that way is something we should turn off. No, of course, we have a part of us, a part, part that likes to take care of others. And it's okay if that's a big part, but that cannot be all of someone. It's just literally not self-sustaining because I always think like, I'm not a math person really, but I think of like some reason the math of this visual, like you can't fill yourself up by pouring yourself out, even in a glass. Like if you had water, like I'm going to fill up my glass, fill up my cup by pouring out all my water. Like someone would be like, well, that's just like not going to work. Sure. Pour some out, but you got to refill. And if you're someone who pours out a lot, well, what are you doing to refill a lot? And if we think about that cup, yes, you have to fill yourself up to give more to your kids, but cups in this metaphor, just feel better when they're full. And you deserve to have a fuller cup, not to pour anything out, just because you deserve it for you. Now to say more, this whole idea of selfless parenting literally gives me the heebie-jeebies, this idea. I think about parenting as leadership, right? As a parent, you're the CEO of your family. Maybe if you have a co-parent, you're the co-CEO. Okay. But you are a CEO of your company. And if you think about other companies and really important companies, right? Because there's no company in your own life that's as important as your family company. So if you think about another company that matters to you and you think about the CEO, I want to know someone who's like, I want to work for a CEO that is selfless, that just gives and gives and gives and gives and never takes time off and is always there working. Like that literally wouldn't be anything we wished for. That would be terrifying. If you think about a pilot on a plane and you're thinking, I hope I have a pilot who just gives and gives and gives and anything we say, we say, no, we don't want to go to Los Angeles anymore. Well, one passenger says very loudly, 
I would like to go to Alaska. Well, I really hope my pilot turns around and caters to that, which is no way we'd want a pilot who says like, thanks, noted, keeping my cockpit door closed and we are going to our destination, right? Like that's what you want. That is what kids want. Kids want a leader who sees their experience, but isn't absorbed by it. The core thing we need to teach our kids is emotion regulation skills. There's nothing more important in life than that. In, in academics and career and relationships, nothing. Everything's driven by our ability to regulate our emotions. And kids need to see that we're not taken over by their emotions. Because if we are, right, if we say to our kids, I'm going out to dinner with my friend and I'm leaving you, even with your mother, with your father, with a babysitter, who you know, it's safe, any of that. And our kids start crying, no, don't go. And that's enough for us to cancel plans. This is what a kid really learns. Wow. The feelings in me that feel overwhelming actually are overwhelming. I just watched my feelings come out of my body because they felt so big. And wow, they actually dictated what my parent did. They actually changed. That is really terrifying. My feelings are stronger than my parents' ability to set a boundary around themselves. Wow, my feelings are contagious and poisonous. That is terrifying. That's reason number one. Reason number two, and this comes to, I think Glennon Doyle talks about this. She talks about all important things in life, of course. It's like, our kids are going to be defining, and this is true for everything. I think love, but let's just talk about motherhood because we're three moms here talking. My kids are going to define motherhood based on how I model motherhood to them, period. Not by anything I say, not by anything they read, not any of that as compared to what I model. That's how they experience motherhood. And if we want to stop this narrative given to us by the patriarchy, that motherhood is about driving ourselves into the ground and disempowering ourselves and just pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, then that stop has to stop with us. And it doesn't mean you have to do a complete 180 because if you're a cycle breaker, you don't have to do the whole cycle breaking by yourself. You do a little piece of it. That's a huge impact to your kid. But yes, saying to your kids at some point, I'm going out to dinner with my friends because I like being with my friends. I wouldn't even say I go out to dinner with my friends because that enables me to be a better mom to you. I wouldn't say that. I mean, I said this to my kids the other night. I'm going out to dinner tonight with my friends because I love being your mom. And I also have a part of me that loves being a friend and being a friend when I'm able to have a conversation without all of our kids interrupting us. I love the time we spend with my friend and her kids too. Yes, we'll do that on Saturday. And tonight I'm really going to engage with my friend as two adults without kids. You're allowed to be upset. I know you're safe. I'll be back and I'll see you in the morning. (laughs) And like, yeah, it's critical to my kids, but I think also like we have to say to ourselves, even if it wasn't like, that's just the wrong barometer, because then again, we're almost gazing out to justify our internal needs. I'm allowed to have time with my friend because I want to, right? I think actually the way we constantly moralize it to ourselves, well, that, you know, one hour with a friend gives me back 30 minutes of energy with my kids. Like it's just one hour with my friend is enjoyable. I'm allowed to have wants and pleasure separate from taking care of others. Like now you've really gotten me going. That's like, really, that's like I'm really fired up about. <laughs> but it's so true though. Like what we model with our kids, they're going to start to pick up on and then they can pass that along to their kids. So let's keep these scripts going because we know how important it is to set boundaries as adults. And we've had other experts on talking about that, but you do such a good job of talking about it with kids specifically. So how can we say no to our kids in a loving way? And obviously this is helping with their development. So just some more pieces there. Yeah. So everything I talk about is grounded in, you know, this like core good inside idea. I think Mm -hmm. it's like chapter two of my book called family jobs, right? There's like 10 principles to everything I talk about. Honestly, one of the core, core ones, the first chapter is good inside, right? The idea that we're good inside, which actually almost unfortunately is a revolutionary concept, I think in child development, but the second is family jobs. So you can never do a job well in life if you don't have a job description right? If you one time went to your new job and you don't have a job description and you don't know what you're supposed to do versus a colleague. And at the end of the day, someone said, did you have a good day? Did you do your job well? If you're like me, like, I don't even know what my job was. Like, how could I know if I did it well? I have no idea. So what is a parent's job? A parent's job is number one, creating boundaries, which is some form of decision, or sometimes it actually is a physical boundary. Like if we have to stop our kids from doing something unsafe, we set boundaries to keep our kids physically and emotionally safe. Then there's part two of a job and it goes hand in hand which is empathy and validation. We empathize and validate our kids' emotional experience to show them that we see them, 
as kids who are real and differentiated from us and worthy of respect. So we're constantly going back and forth in our jobs, boundaries, validation, and empathy. They happen together. What's a kid's job? It's actually really important to know also. It's so helpful. I believe a kid's job is to experience and express their entire range of emotions in their childhood. So we can help them build skills for their entire range of emotions. Any adult knows you don't get rid of jealousy. You never stop feeling frustrated. You either have skills to manage those feelings or you're at the same developmental place you were when you were two. And we know those adults. And sometimes we are those adults. It's not pretty, right? It's never too late. We can go to therapy, do all the things, but we would rather have developed some of those skills early. So let's say we're talking about a kid, I don't know, wanting to have a sleepover on a Tuesday night and they have school the next morning, something that seems ridiculous to us. Or they want to watch their 20th TV show and we're finally saying no. I think the key thing is actually the question we ask, because this is what parents say to me all the time. How do you say no and have my kid not freak out about it? Nope. If you notice, you're actually controlling your kid's job. You would never, ever do your job at a desk or on a farm and say, how do I do my job? And, and then say something about some colleague doing their job. They'd be like, that's on them to do their job. You're not doing their job. I think we have to ask the right question. How can I say no to my kid in a way that I feel good about? How can I be prepared for maybe my kid to do her job? And what's my job in response to her job? That's totally different, right? So how might I say no to a sleepover? Oh, no, we're not going to have a sleepover tonight. I know you really wish you could have a sleepover. Sleepovers are great. Part of my job is to make decisions that I feel like are best for the family. And a sleepover on a Tuesday night is just not something we're going to do. Okay. And now if you have some amazing, easy, <laughs> child, they'll be like, thanks, mom. You're the best, right? Okay. My children have never said that. Let me be perfectly clear. Your child's probably can do this. What? You know, someone's parent lets them have a sleepover or, oh, you're the worst. Or they start to cry and scream. Now I go back. Okay. They're actually doing their job. It's not convenient. It's not particularly enjoyable for anyone, but they're doing their job because essentially they're feeling the feelings of, I want something and I'm not having it. And if we can't tolerate that in them and help them build skills for that, well, I promise you that's not the stuff anyone can ever learn in a textbook. So they're doing their job. Now, what's my job? Again, boundaries, validation, empathy. If they're actually being dangerous, like they're about to throw something, I'd stop them with their wrist. I'm not going to let you throw. I'm not going to let you throw. I know you're mad. You're allowed to be as mad as you want to be. You're in fact, you're as mad as this whole house right now. And I'm always going to keep you safe because I love you and you're a good kid. It's kind of some version of that over and over. If it's really, really extreme, I don't know, probably carry them to a smaller room with us, not as a timeout, because this is a way of actually offering spatial containment for the feelings that are exploding out of them. And then I stay and I wait. My job is to end the meltdown. My job's definitely not to end their feelings. My job is to be present offer containment and boundaries when needed, offer empathy and validation. Sometimes with my words, sometimes we just offer that with our presence and actually kids need us to say very little and wait it out. And going off of that question, I know something that I've read about is our job of teaching these kids resilience. And mm -hmm. that's really, really hard to do if we never let them feel frustrated. So something that you talk about is frustration tolerance. And we've all been there before when our kiddo is melting down because they can't get their shoe on or they can't open something for themselves. Now, I know in the past I have swooped in and saved the day, and I'm trying to do that less and less, especially for skills that I know are age appropriate and that they can do it. So how can we help our kids tolerate their frustration in these moments so that they become more resilient down the road? Such a good question. Yeah, resilience, it's so huge. And I think the first thing to realize is, let's say your kid's trying to tie their shoe and they're really upset. When we kind of swoop in and do it, the truth is we're not doing that because we're trying to help them with their emotions. We have an emotional experience in response to witnessing theirs. And we swoop in right away to end our own as quickly as possible. That same thing with any kind of tantrum. Like, again, like we see something in our kid, it evokes a circuit in us. And then when we look to jump in right away, it's really like for ourselves not for our kids. It doesn't help them, but it's, it's also not even really about them if we tell ourselves the truth of the matter. And I think realizing that is huge because actually building your kid's resilience in a tough moment or in a tough skill building moment, like learning to tie your own shoes, 
it's actually about first building your own resilience. Like, can I tolerate this for 10 more seconds? Can I help my kid? Can I support, but not solve? I think that's what's key, support and not solve. So solving looks like this. Look, you're freaking out. Like you're, you're, you're not gonna be able to tie your shoe like this. Let me just do it and let's get out of the house. Okay, that would be solving. What my kid really learns is I'm frustrated. And again, I'm looking at my parent in that moment. Even they can't tolerate this feeling in me. They just need to end it. And not only does that lower someone's resilience, it also builds a different circuit. When I'm frustrated, I should find success. I was frustrated. I couldn't do my shoes. The next thing I knew there was a bow. Well, I think we all know that's not really a realistic circuit to expect in life, right? And if we want to know why so many kids, when they get older, they appear so entitled. Entitlement in like teenage years, really underlying that is a terror of frustration. If someone's learned to pair such immediate success after their struggle, usually because they had a whole host of people doing things for them, that then when that's not able to happen, their body is essentially like, I have no idea how to deal with this. My body's back to being one years old, right? And it does look like a one-year-old tantrum. So let's talk about like shoe tying or puzzle doing these like kind of skills. If we're not solving, what does supporting look like? Well, anytime we support someone, we have to start before the moment comes. Hey, I noticed you're getting a 12 piece puzzle. That's going to be a little tricky, right? Let's just get our bodies ready for that. I don't know about you, but I need a deep breath. Oh, this is going to be tricky. Same thing can be said with the shoe tying. Okay. Now they start and they're, oh, I can't do it. Mom, just, I can't even get the knot part. What do I say to myself? Ooh, I see their frustration and I feel my own. I can get through this. I'm going to support and not solve. Now, maybe I go over, or let's say it's my son and I sit down and I say, look, here's the thing. I'm not going to just do it for you. Not right away. We have to break this down step by step. Tell me something, you know, I don't want to, I'm not doing it. Right. Let's say that's like the worst case. They just refuse. I mean, obviously there's sometimes you have to say, you know what, fine, I'll do it. Work on this later. I guess more practice is needed, but I might also say something like this. Look, sweetie, I'm going to help you finish it. I'm not going to help you start it. Let me tell you why. If I help you start it, there's a message your body's going to get. You might not think it's true, but it will. And the message is going to be, mom doesn't even think I can handle how frustrating this is. Forget the handling the tying. In order to tie, you have to be a little frustrated. And I know we can get through this frustration together. So I'm going to take some deep breaths. I think if you try this one part one more time, you're going to be able to get it. And if you don't, we'll take a deep breath and try it again. I'm really modeling my tolerance of my child's struggle. That's how kids build resilience. They eventually build more tolerance for their own struggle. Resilience isn't getting to success faster. Ironically, it's tolerating the frustration of not having success yet, which we all know makes you more successful because you're able to work for longer. So that really, yes, is something that can be applied to a million different things. That process of preparing, supporting, regulating my own body, showing hope in my child and breaking things down into small steps and sticking with your calm presence over an immediate solution. Answers like that one that we can start to implement right away. And one of the biggest reasons that we wanted to have you on. So thank you, not only for that answer, but for just everything that you're putting into the world Mm -hmm. and how we can help our kids, but we can also start to help ourselves. Just like you said in that last answer with supporting, but not solving. I think so many of our listeners, Amy and I included, looking internally first to support ourselves before solving the problem can just lead to a much better tomorrow with our kids and with ourselves individually. So could you please, Dr. Becky, let our listeners know where they can find more of you? Oh, thank you. This is such an amazing conversation with you too. Yes. Everything you can find at Good Inside, goodinside.com. And what can you find there? Well, first of all, you can sign up for my free Thursday email. It goes right to your inbox. It's called the Good Insider. I promise you it's not spam. It's not anything like that. I often just want to condense like a weekly thought into a place that kind of social media wouldn't allow me to do. And I want to deliver it right to your inbox. So many people tell me they want to be in social media less. So that's really easy to do right from the website. From the website, you can get my book, which I am so proud of. It is not a regurgitation of things I put elsewhere at all. I honestly wrote it because I had a more coherent theory I wanted to put out there and wanted to then adapt that theory and all the key principles to common problem areas that you can just reference when that problem area inevitably pops up. So that's also called good inside. And then I think the thing most proudest of 
is our membership, right? I think parents need access to resources. So we created a digital library organized by common parenting problems, kind of something to replace the frantic Googling we all do. Uh, it includes all my workshops. I've trained Good Inside coaches and our whole team and me answers your personal questions in membership. There's live events, including three with me every month. And really you've then have access to all the other members. There are thousands of Good Inside members from across the globe, sharing your values, wanting to offer support. It is the kindest, most empowering place on the internet. And all of that is in membership. So if you do end up joining from this podcast, I always love to know where people come from. And so truly send me a DM on that platform. It's where I read all of my DMs and say, oh, I heard you on the Herself podcast. And I wanted to you know, take that next step because I just always love to kind of understand and close the loop. And thank you for having me. This is such an amazing podcast. Really, I don't know if I've been on one that has such poignant, really important questions. So this was so enjoyable. Thank you. Well, thank you again. And we'll make sure to include all of those resources in our notes section. And for those of you who love this interview, go ahead and write us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps us out as podcasters to get more incredible guests, just like Dr. Becky on our podcast. So thanks again. Thank you so much.